Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Babak Ashrafi. Today is September 14, 2020, and we'll be speaking with three guests. The President of the American Association for the History of Medicine, President of the History of Science Society, and the President of the Society for the History of Technology. This podcast episode is a recording of the weekly meeting of the Consortium's current and past fellows. Normally, this seminar is an informal discussion of the project of one of our current fellows, who might be a graduate student starting a dissertation or a tenured faculty member finishing up a book. We normally talk about research questions and methods, working in the collections of consortium member institutions, and maybe some preliminary findings. In addition to fellows, we have other guests who might talk about one of the collections or issues of recent interest to the profession. The meeting you're about to hear is more structured for the purpose of creating a podcast recording. Only the society presidents appear in the video. About 30 fellows are participating off screen, sending their questions and comments via text chat. Our three discussants are Jan Galinsky, who is president of the History of Science Society and professor of history and humanities at the University of New Hampshire. Thomas J. Misa, is president of the Society for the History of Technology. He directed the Charles Babbage Institute at the University of Minnesota from 2006 to 2017, where he taught in the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine program. Keith Whalu is the president of the American Association for the History of Medicine. He is Henry Putnam University Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University, where he teaches in the Department of History and in the School of Public and International Affairs. He is former Chair of History and former Vice Dean in the School of Public and International Affairs. So we uh, all know about the annual meetings and the journals, but I wonder if there are new initiatives and projects, I know there are many, many committees on each of the societies, if there's new initiatives, projects, or directions that your societies are pursuing, and that we might look forward to or take the opportunity to participate in. Keith, would you start with the American Association for the History of Medicine? Sure, uh, and Babak, I just wanna thank you for pulling this really uh, terrific conversation together. Um, so, you know, in some ways the pandemic has altered the landscape for initiatives for our association and the challenges that it poses are sort of obvious the cancellation of in-person meetings we canceled our may 2020 meeting loss of opportunities for scholars uh, to exchange work and to gather socially the economic collapse has created impediments for certainly job prospects not not to mention research uh, in archives and the closure of libraries and all of which have had adverse implications for senior scholars and junior scholars so so what are the initiatives well one of the important things that we've done is to move our canceled may meetings many of those panels online uh, for this late fall, November, December, and January. We worked with about 12 host universities to try to maintain and sustain the kind of vibrant scholarly interaction. Um, and in some ways, you know, maybe even opening up 
what had been closed meetings to broader, larger audiences. So I guess if I'd say there was one theme of the year, and I actually became president in May, uh, it's the idea of taking what is a challenge and pursuing opportunities, turning it into an opportunity. So for instance, I looked, we looked across the pond at what the British Society uh, for the History of Science did with its global digital history of science festival. And because our 2021 meeting is canceled as well, we've been thinking about how to actually do a vibrant, interesting um, AHM 2021 conference. And so what that's involved is creating a remote arrangements committee uh, for moving online, but maybe moving online that's more than just a series of Zoom talks or more than just doing remotely what we would normally do in person. So we've constituted a committee. So that's probably these two are major initiatives going into this year, both kind of making use of this online venue, pivoting to the online world and realizing that um, it's here to stay in some ways. Uh, and so making the best use of it. I should say one last thing, which is that in the wake, well, in the lead up to the cancellation of our May 2020 meeting, one of the things I did before I became president is organize a two-day pandemics webinar. Uh, and I was stunned by the engagement and turnout. It was open to the public and we had something like 3,800 attendees from 49 countries over the course of two days. Uh, in some ways, the AHM is well suited to this moment because the issues brought to the fore by the pandemic are issues that our members have been studying and writing about uh, for their entire careers. And so the last thing I'll add, end on is that when the American Historical Association asked us to partner with them to ask our members how they have been engaging uh, with the pandemic in terms of public education. Uh, we polled our members and asked them to submit um, their op-eds, their blogs, their podcasts, et cetera. And there, we had about 200 members, um, everywhere from graduate students to junior scholars and postdocs to senior members who have been writing and active in this space. So in some ways I'd say We've been pivoting into this space that's created by the pandemic, but really our members have been doing it and we've been following them uh, and encouraging them along the way. Thank you, Keith. Jan, about the History of Science Society. Yeah, okay, well, let me start by echoing uh, Keith's thanks, uh, Babak, to you and your colleagues for organizing this um, uh, uh, symposium. Um, uh, so yes, I guess, like Keith, uh, we're, we're looking for opportunities in crisis, and we've tried to, um, tried to uh, take advantage of those. Uh, we have a slightly different annual schedule than the um, AHM, so our uh, fall meeting uh, uh, has uh, been uh, canceled or postponed. Um, and instead we are working jointly with SHOT on uh, an online meeting designed from the ground up as an online meeting. Um, uh, as Keith mentioned, we were uh, inspired and encouraged by the example of the British Society which uh, uh, with their festival over the summer. And so we now have uh, 
in advanced stage of planning, um, what we're calling a virtual forum, uh, which will occur uh, 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 in October 8th to the 10th um, uh, with SHOT. And the program is um, uh, now uh, up uh, online. You can find it on our website and um, uh, registration is open. And we, we took a few sessions from the um, meeting that we were planning to have in person in New Orleans. Uh, we reconfigured those slightly because, of course, you can't simply carry a, um, uh, an in-person conference session over to a, a, an online platform. Um, so we uh, reconfigured the sessions. We chose sessions that um, in, in some ways um, addressed the present moment, um, provided a historical context to um, some of what's going on at the moment. Um, we also put together from scratch a series of sessions on what we're calling futures, um, trying to look ahead with the advantage of, you know, the historical um, uh, insights that, that, that our members have. Uh, one of them is going to be on the future of scholarship in the history of science, uh, one on the future of the profession, uh, and one on the future of the society. Um, and so those are all things that we're all thinking about uh, intensely, and um, uh, I, it's going to be really interesting and useful to uh, hear what um, some of our members have to say about those issues. There's also going to be a conversation with our Sarton medalist, uh, Jim Bennett, um, who's a, a uh, a, um, a leading um, practitioner of the history of science um, in uh, relation to its material culture and uh, instrumentation. Um, Jim represents the branch of our profession that um, has pursued its careers in the museum world. And another thing that we have launched recently is a new caucus in the society, um, which is called CALM. It's the caucus for people who work in archives, libraries, and museums. Um, and uh, this is one of the ways in which we are reflecting a situation in which uh, people are likely increasingly to be making their careers in the history of science, technology, and medicine um, outside uh, the traditional academic structure. Um, we also have a... Um, uh, a committee uh, called HSS at work that also tries to serve the needs of those um, colleagues um, uh, who are in other kinds of professional locations. Um, we have other caucuses that are somewhat longer established, uh, one for uh, graduate and early career caucus, which represents graduate students and people in the first few years of their um, uh, professional careers. Um, uh, and we recently um, uh, chose a non-voting member of the council uh, from that, uh, or, or largely representing that group, an early career representative on council. Um, so uh, there are uh, those ways, other, in addition to the virtual forum, other ways in which within the structures of the society, we're trying to recognize the changing dimensions of um, the profession in history of science and figuring out how to serve um, a membership 
that is likely to become more diverse. We're very interested in diversification and other dimensions also in our, in our uh, membership uh, and its in internationalization, which is a goal that we've been setting ourselves for a few years now coming out of a, a strategic planning activity, which we undertook a few years ago. <clears throat> so uh, my voice is failing me, but that's what I wanted to bring forward. Thanks, Jan. Um, let me encourage the fellows and guests to put their questions or comments or follow-ups in the chat uh, to Larry Kessler uh, to share with the discussants. Tom, what new directions are we looking at from Schott's point of view? Sure, my, my thanks to you, Bob Bach, and the consortium as well. Um, I'm, I was thinking of this, and maybe you can draw like a Venn diagram with four circles. And so these are initiatives that both predated the COVID crisis and pandemic and the situation we're in, but they interact with it in a kind of powerful way. So the four circles, I, I see them as uh, with a small society, uh, the key thing is to get the overlap to be as large as possible because otherwise you go in four separate directions and that's, that's a real challenge. So the first one is internationalization. Shot's been talking about internationalization for both well, two, three, four, five, six, seven years, long time. And in December, we passed a formal uh, internationalization plan. And that is basically set up to more formally engage um, both where Shot's been uh, outside of North America, which is Europe, uh, to develop Asia, and then also to be reaching out more uh, firmly to Latin America and Africa. The second one is, uh, it was prompted really by the mountain of food that we threw away in Milan. And every society throws away a mountain of food. And a young member came up to me and said, well, you have to do something about this ecological disaster that's the shot meeting. So we started talking about the ecological impacts. And it's not only the food that we throw out, but it's the travel and the tremendous amount of uh, people on an airplane. So, so we started a initiative and trying to think carefully about what we really want out of an annual meeting. So we have an, an initiative there. And that really is focusing on the kinds of activities that we want. And of course, with an online meeting, uh, you get the deck of cards uh, thrown up in, in an incredibly different way. That's number two. Number three is really a response to the racial reckoning we had some younger members that said, this is an imperative shot must uh, address this moment. And there's several different things going on from the center, so to say, uh, Arwen Mohan and I have started a president's initiative on uh, racial justice. And we're going to be with luck on Friday, passing that through our um, policymaking um, body, the shot executive council. But that'll be a way that we try to adjust, bump, change, improve, our um, engagement with scholarship and viewpoints that we want to be connected with. And so that will um, be something that we'll, um, we'll be announcing publicly. We were in a kind of quiet phase of the fundraising and like, setting things up for this summer. And then the fourth one is really looking at, um, well, it's governance and strengthening governance and trying to connect the different pieces of SHOT, the different committees, different members, different functions and activities more closely not only with the SHOT officers, but also with the SHOT Executive Council. 
and the executive council had been a body that had been meeting twice annually, and we switched about a year, year and a half ago to monthly Zoom meetings. So we were just slightly ahead of the curve there. Um, so we, we've got an early version of Zoom fatigue or something, I think, um, uh, sometimes. But you can see the character of the society as a whole is one of the things that's at the center. So how do we organize uh, international contacts? How do we organize meetings that don't put everybody on an airplane? How do we mobilize information technology, virtual forums, software tools that we are not expert with at all? So we have to be on, um, on a learning curve there. How can we connect the annual meeting better to the perspectives as well as the people that have historically been underrepresented and how can we strengthen our own governance processes? So those are the sort of four circles of the Venn diagram and I try to find as many places right square in the center as I can. And the character of the annual meeting um, is something that's been much on our mind and you can see that that radiates outward to, uh, to each of those four. So those are, those are some of the things. They preceded the COVID crisis, um, and some of them are standing independent of the COVID crisis, but they're, they're challenged by that. And I think all of us are trying to figure out ways of connecting better with our, um, with, with our members. I found a meeting, this was away in the spring. It was an IEEE meeting, you know, the kind of the electrical engineering profession. And they have a whole big meeting on virtual reality. Those people loved having their physical meeting canceled because they had all these great tools and techniques and software platforms. They ran three separate software platforms. Um, Jan and I have scratched our heads a little bit on this. We, we can run one. We have to choose that very carefully. But these IEEE people were just thrilled, essentially, to have all these tools and techniques. And, and so those are some things that we probably are going to be learning about Zoom does some things well and some things not so well. So we, we may be uh, scratching our heads and trying to come up uh, with some good approaches to that. Thank you, Tom. We've had some questions that actually anticipate our next discussion question. So uh, I'll ask that and then I might follow up with some of these. So the question, many of our fellows, not all, but many of our fellows are advanced graduate students or recent postdocs. So uh, how do these junior scholars, advanced graduate students and young postdocs fit into the activities and structures of your societies? And so I'm gonna to add to that one of the questions we got and independent scholars, people who don't have an affiliation with an academic institution. Uh, what kinds of roles might these kinds of scholars have in, uh, in these societies? Jan, do you wanna start us off talking about the history of science society? Sure. <laughs> so, I mean, the traditional um, uh, thing was that they come to meetings, but um, uh, that's um, uh, that's certainly not the only way in which they can be involved in the society, and not the only way in which the society can can serve them. Um, uh, so, I've mentioned our graduate and early career caucus, which is an extremely active grouping within the society that organises its own events and has has a high profile in social media. Um, uh, and I mentioned also uh, our uh, caucus for um, uh, uh, people who work in archives, libraries and museums. Um, so our aim is really that uh, we should serve the professional needs of um, everybody in the history of science who's active in the history of science. 
um, uh, regardless of whether they're following a traditional academic career track or, or another one. Um, and we have, as I mentioned, uh, reformed our governance structure to uh, the extent of um, uh, electing a representative, an early career representative to council. Uh, we're in the process of figuring out how to make that a permanent uh, feature of our governance operations. We're also engaging in actually a, 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 an even broader um, reconsideration of governance structures. Uh, the vice president of the society, Karen Rader, uh, has initiated a process that, that we're calling the ITGR, Inclusive and Transparent Governance Review. Um, and she's been soliciting uh, opinions very widely uh, within the society and outside about ways in which we can uh, make our governance structures uh, more transparent and more inclusive. Um, and uh, we're, we're waiting to see what recommendations will emerge from, from that process. But there is um, at least one session at the forthcoming virtual forum, uh, as I mentioned, on the future of the society. And uh, we'll be looking to the participants in that session and to others who might attend that session for input into that process of uh, improving the inclusiveness and transparency of our of our governance organizations so there's really there really is an opportunity at this particular moment in the society's history for um, uh, junior scholars and uh, independent scholars and others who have felt um, marginalized in the past to really have an input into um, changing the structures of the society um, uh, to make them more inclusive. Thanks, Jan. Tom, uh, you want to talk about young people, young scholars, independent scholars at SHOT? Um, yeah, ACIG, uh, History of Science has caucuses. We have interest groups. So many of our topical interest groups or thematic interest groups are not caucuses, but interest groups. So ACIG, Early Career Interest Group, is the a group of active uh, graduate students, uh, postdocs, and uh, and early uh, uh, early career people. Uh, Shot ended up about four or five years ago, deciding that their perspective was so important. We would hear rumors about what the graduate students were were talking about. So we ended up actually changing our um, composition of our executive council, and we have a voting member of um, the graduate students from ESIG. And the graduate students, the ESIG uh, group votes on their representative, but that's a full voting member. So just like any other voting member, it's an elected position for a two year term. And I think that's just been really helpful because it not only gives you know, the early career people a voice at the table for these monthly meetings. So it's a substantial commitment of their time and effort, but it's also just really valuable to hear both formally and informally about what people outside the more senior uh, realms of, you know, typically shot officers are senior. That's just the, the nature of the game. So that was, that, that was, that was a helpful change. ESIG has been involved with doing uh, scholarly workshops. They basically run a, 
uh, one-day workshop prior to our annual meeting. And they're also talking about the need for additional professionalization workshops that they would run through the uh, compass of this year. I think independent scholars have been mainstreamed within SHOT for, uh, for, for quite a long time. We've had both junior, senior, and very distinguished members that have not had a traditional appointment, not in the academy or the museum world or, uh, or, or library world. And I think that it, um, there's one place where the two are in, um, there's, an, there's an overlap. You can be an independent scholar, uh, you know, junior, middle, or, or very senior, but oftentimes it's support to attend meetings and to get to meetings and to get to, um, you know, committee meetings. So the burdens of travel are, again, one of those things that we've been trying to figure out a way of doing. Um, we've spent in the past, especially I think past five years, really quite a lot of, of shot money as well as NSF money uh, that's been helpfully coordinated with the History of Science Society to try to bring um, as many people as possible and to facilitate travel. And I think that's going to become an acute problem in the next couple of years as university budgets and institutional budgets are uh, stretched to their breaking point. So I don't see an easy answer to that, but that's 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 been something um, much on our minds. This professionalization workshop um, that the ESIG uh, folks are uh, talking over, that's online. That's that's this format, basically a Zoom platform or one of the other uh, software platforms that, and a chance to meet informally. So that's that's um, those are those are some of the things. Shot members also, let me just say, as a graduate student. You get on the regular program as well. You're not relegated to the early career uh, program. There's many graduate students and early career scholars, and even a few senior scholars that make the regular uh, shop program. So that's it's pretty much across the board. Thank you, Tom. Keith uh, at AAHM. Yeah. So graduate students and recent postdocs and independent scholars fill a number of roles. Um, I should say that one of the key concerns in this year with the loss of our in-person meeting in May is the importance, I mean, one of the drivers behind moving those panels online was the desire to make sure that young scholars in particular, people who are working on dissertations or people who are, have finished the PhD and really need uh, and desire a kind of feedback from scholars in the field, are given that opportunity. So a lot of the impetus behind moving those panels online in November, December, and January is to make sure that it's not a lost year of feedback for, particularly for junior scholars. Um, but quite apart from that, um, we have things like, we have student affairs committee, uh, which um, has two graduate students on it uh, that feed sort of insights and advice back to the, um, the leadership, uh, the council. We, this year in particular, in arranging for the remote arrangements committee to plan next year's annual meeting, whatever that looks like, we have four graduate students involved in that, as well as a couple of junior scholars. Uh, the idea being that we really see this as an, as, as a, an opportunity to 
not only to expand representation, we usually would not have junior scholars on our program committee, but it just struck us as absolutely important to have junior scholars, rising scholars, young scholars perspective on how to engage around um, the history of medicine, the history of public health and the issues that intersect uh, so much with public conversation. Uh, we have some junior scholars, mostly assistant professors on the prize committees, uh, on the education and outreach committee, and um, as Tom just recently mentioned, also on the diversity and inclusion committee, there's an independent scholar on our council, which is the executive body that uh, makes policies. So, um, and, and I should say also that uh, the person who is chairing our remote arrangements committee to kind of imagine what 2021 should be is a non-university based uh, historian of medicine who runs a state council for the humanities. Uh, so, you know, in addition to that, we have archivists and the librarians, et cetera, a, a really a full diversity of um, kinds of people who are invested in the history of medicine and public health involved in different parts of our organization. I should say one other thing about junior scholars. I mean, when we do, when you have the, done these online activities like the pandemics conference, it is the graduate students and postdocs who are most active in social media uh, and who therefore more so than the older cohorts like myself, who are therefore able to kind of amplify and engage uh, and as I said earlier, the history of medicine is at a very specific kind of paradoxical moment where on the one hand, professional opportunities have for the moment, given the economic crisis dwindled. And yet we are at a moment when the topic that we write about has never been more relevant, uh, both within the academy and within a broader kind of public conversation. And so some of the, a good example is like, when, when I worked with the AHA to gather the new writings of our members, many of those new writings were graduate students. And I discovered graduate student and postdoc work through this vehicle. And I've now assigned some of those in the course I'm teaching in the fall. So I like to think that if we're attentive to this moment and do a good job of curating this activity, that we can both individually advance the careers of our uh, rising scholars, but also kind of collectively advance the field. Thank you. We have a series of questions that seem to be clustering about inclusion and diversity, as well as online connecting. So let me see if I can summarize some of them that Larry Kessler has been collecting and usefully summarizing. Um, one is that the meetings were useful for uh, making networks, making connections, meeting each other for junior scholars in particular outside of the talks. So the question generally is, are there downsides to this kind of Zoom meeting and how can we address them? And we've been doing online networks since Skype was the only option. And we always got questions like, you're going to record this, aren't you? Or you're not going to record this, are you? Um, so there's, there's opportunities here, but there's also worries. And, and we're all trying to take advantage of the opportunities. But can we, how are the societies thinking about addressing the downsides of this kind of remote connectivity? And then we'll move on to some questions about inclusion and diversity. Um, sorry, Tom, would you start? <laughs> 
you already mentioned some of this in your earlier responses. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm writing about Arab Spring. And one of the pivotal figures there was this uh, uh, Egyptian man, Wael Gonim, who became famous for this book, uh, Revolution 2.0, uh, which was purportedly, when he published it, how the um, you know, people have, in the streets have more power than the people with the traditional levers of power. And he was involved with the street protests that knocked down Hosni Mubarak. And for a time, I think, became, uh, well, he's a very brave man, went to, went to jail for 11 days. And his book is basically a kind of um, unabashed celebration of the power of social media to change the world. And he reflected on that and gave a TED Talk a couple years later. And he said, that's what I believed then. I was wrong. And I'm, I'm trying to think of a way that we can gain access to his insight. And he said he was wrong in a very specific way. He said social media, the way that it's constituted now, doesn't start a conversation. It doesn't build community. That was his main um, sort of diagnosis. It was great to get thousands, tens of thousands of people out into the streets, but it didn't build communities. And it struck me that that's what we need to do is not mass mobilize around flashy memes and get people angry or upset or excited or enthused, but we need a new kind of social media that allows us to have not short conversations, but long conversations. So while Gonim spent much of the subsequent years uh, from Arab Spring trying to build social media that would be long form, that would build communities that would have a kind of not contemplative, but an intentionality to them. And I don't know so much about them, but I'm, I'm thinking that that's an area where our social media, when we say Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, it's built for reasons that aren't ours. They're, they're, it's built for an advertising model for fast, for flashy, for things that get the moment, you know, sort of everybody gets excited about. But what we need is something really quite different. And if we had a social media form and I'm not even thinking, imagine Twitter done differently. I'm just thinking of some different form that would allow participation, but a degree of intentionality and that would build in conversation. Wow, what would that do for our ability to do networking? Because that's what networking is, right? You introduce yourself to somebody and then you can have a conversation and it doesn't have a single path. It has multiple different paths. Sometimes it's just, oh, let me give you my card or it might be a medium length conversation or it might be a substantive uh, conversation, but it's a longer and intentional conversation. And our social media is not designed to do that. It's designed to do precisely the opposite. So I'm just thinking that over the next few years, we're gonna be searching around for something different than what we have right now. And what that will be, it's really hard to tell, but people who've used social media to dramatic effect, I mean, while Gonim, is internationally famous. You look him up and he's like everywhere. Um, and, and he's a brave person, but he's brave in two different ways. He's brave in a kind of physical sense, but he's brave also in an intellectual sense, thinking, well, I thought this during Arab Spring, I was wrong. Here's what we really need out of, out of social media. So many of these conversations about inclusivity, about networking, about the character of our annual meetings, if we're gonna be putting stuff online, the character of social media and, and what kinds of affordances it has, 
what it permits us to do and what it makes it really difficult to do, I think that's going to be a really pressing question for us to confront. Keith, has there been discussion on this topic at AAHM? Yeah, I think we're trying to, um, as most societies, figure this out. And uh, I think the moment seems to require a kind of engagement with not just questions of race and in our case, things like social inequality, but also health inequality is manifest in COVID-19. Uh, we are living in a time of extraordinary um, social unrest and a desire to kind of change the systemic kind of structures of society to be more just. And at the same time, we're isolated, right? We're sitting in rooms um, and, and told to so socially distance in a way uh, that, that safeguards ourselves and the public health. And it's not exactly clear how we marry these two and make them speak to one another. So one of the things that Tom just mentioned is the AHM is trying to figure out, and HSS and SHOT just sort of went down this road themselves, you know, is there a, a better social, is there a better platform for engagement that allows, for instance, um, things like for an annual meeting or a virtual forum, breakout rooms that are thematic in nature so that social networking of not the kind that happens in an annual meeting, but a new kind maybe around very particular. So, you, you know, at a meeting, an annual meeting, you might have a lunch unexpectedly with three other people. Are there ways in which you can guide that, make that possible, but maybe even make that happen around particular themes like um, inequality uh, and like, you know, understanding the implications, the social implications of uh, a pandemic or, or making sure that vaccines, you know, how vaccines relate to issues of uh, equity uh, in society. So I guess what I would say is we are tr we're figuring this out. We're trying to figure out what the limitations are of these new modes of uh, engagement, but also realizing that we're laying the groundwork for whatever happens next when we move back. Um, you know, I guess the last thing I'll say is the last couple of meetings that we had at AHM, we had really vibrant lunch sessions around these questions of diversity, inclusion, uh, professional development. So it's not that we weren't already doing that. What we want to make sure is that the isolation, the social isolation that we're all experiencing now doesn't squelch that, but in fact can be used to kind of catalyze it. Um, and that's the kind of thing that our remote arrangements committee is thinking about. That's the kind of thing our council is thinking about. And that's certainly the kinds of thing that we're polling our members about so that we design a meeting or maybe a series of meetings that kind of can make the best of this bad situation. Thank you, Keith. Jan? 
Uh, I don't have much to add to what Tom and Keith have said because we're we're all trying to work this out at the moment. Uh, I, I I know that our uh, planning committee for the virtual forum has looked at the capabilities of online platforms for things other than formal sessions. Um, uh, we uh, for a number of years, for example, at the in-person meetings, we've had a, a mentorship event where um, uh, graduate students and early career scholars have been invited to interact informally with more senior scholars and and you know pick their brains about um uh whatever it is preparing a paper for publication or uh uh drawing up your beta in a way that that makes you emerge at the top of the pile of uh, job applicants or whatever um and we're trying to figure out a way we will have something like that <laughs> online <laughs> at the beginning of october and um uh uh, I, I, I'm not myself familiar with the, you know, what it is in the in the platform that allows that sort of event to occur and, and exactly how it's going to occur. But we are trying to um, not replicate, but in some way substitute for the um, those kinds of uh, uh, informal uh, interactive. Um, occasions um, uh, in in an online form, and I mean, since you mentioned Babak downsides, I mean, we have to, we have to acknowledge that people don't always behave very well uh, online, and so we have taken measures. We have a respectful behaviour policy, which was drawn up initially for in-person meetings, but we've tried to figure out how it would apply to online meetings um, and we have we have a social media policy as well uh, um, uh, uh, or a, a, a policy to deal with um, situations of online harassment so um, we're trying to think about that as well uh, how to um, make sure that those uh, kinds of interactions are uh, productive and collegial um, uh, and they they don't end up reproducing the, some of the worst features of social media that we're all familiar with. Thank you, Jan. We've gotten a bunch of questions. I don't quite know how many asking for specifics about potential directions, efforts, initiatives for inclusion and diversity. People have mentioned specifically issues of race, issues of gender and sexuality, issues of income and class, and also internationalization. Um, so these are these are big questions. And I think Keith, you, you mentioned that these issues in, in line with the social media and online activity, can you give us some, I don't know, some directions that might be potential pursuits for the societies to increase, increase diversity and inclusion among these various um, categories and identities and it's it's a complicated question. I can't think of a concise concise way to put it, but maybe I'll stop there. <laughs> right. So um, if I could break it down a little, uh, I'll say a couple of things. First, a caveat. Um, so the challenge of di diversity and inclusion uh, for a professional society is quite different than, let's say, uh, as I was a chair of a history department or a vice dean in uh, the School of Public and International Affairs. That is to say, we're not a hiring institution. So, you know, the, the kinds of challenges that um, employers are sort of 
the, the sorts of things that employers need to attend to um, in diversifying uh, their, their the, the, the faculty, the staff, et cetera, don't fall as firmly within our society. So when we think about diversity and inclusion, we're thinking about maybe two kinds of things, um, uh, diversifying our membership and, the, the, and, and expanding and the topic range that is included in the conversation around the history of medicine uh, or the history of public health. Um, and then it, you might say kind of turning our members to a ta the task of, of speaking more and engaging more with questions of inclusion and diversity, not only in the topic range of medicine and health and the biomedical sciences, but also more generally, because the medical issues are, are kind of adjacent to social and political questions, right? So in some ways, you know, as a society, we're, we're about promoting awareness and scholarship. And so what are we doing? Well, you know, rather than kind of having a top-down approach, as in we ought to be doing this, one of the things that we've done is created, uh, uh, we have a diversity and inclusion committee, but we've created a, a subcommittee of our council to write a, a mission um, for what a society like ours should be doing in a time like ours where the questions of COVID-19 and the pandemic are raising, surfacing, but also accentuating really profound questions about uh, inequalities of health experience. Um, so it's not, you know, it, it's a tricky question because one of the things that we have to do as a society is to understand what our limitations are. You know, we can't change the way the academy works, but we can change the way historians of medicine and public health do their work, think about and engage with these kinds of questions. Um, so, so we have committees at work helping us to think through these kinds of questions. Um, the other thing that we've done, and I think we've done a fairly good job with it over the last oh, five years or so, is to make the society much more welcoming to these kinds of conversations uh, with, in our luncheon talks, in our panel discussions. But in some ways, we're just reflecting how the field has gone over the last uh, 10 or 15 years or so. Um, when I started, I, I work in race and health for my entire career. I started in, uh, I think I finished my PhD in 1992 and I could count maybe on one or one hand, the number of people who were working in this realm. And right now it, it's, it's quite extraordinary. So in some ways our job is to curate uh, and to disseminate and to encourage this kind of scholarship, because after all, we are primarily a scholarly society. Thank you, Keith. Jan? Um, yeah, well, uh, uh, we, I could add to that that we have a committee on diversity and inclusion, but um, and uh, the uh, initiative that I mentioned on the inclusiveness, inclusive and transparent governance review uh, is another address uh, attempt to address some of these questions. Um, uh, I think we, I think we have to start from a position of recognizing that we have a lot to do on this front, and um, I've I've been uh, very. Um, uh, 
struck and um, uh, alarmed to hear anecdotal reports from individuals who attended um, some of our meetings in the past and, and found the atmosphere unwelcoming. Um, uh, that's, that's something of great concern to me. I, I think uh, going back a few years, um, uh, we used to hear those um, sort of anecdotal reports um, in many cases from women. And uh, we, we, when we formulated our respectful behavior policy a few years ago, I think we were primarily thinking about um, gender issues and about the ways in which, um, in some respects, uh, to some degree, the atmosphere at our meetings might have been unwelcoming uh, to women. Um, I think we now have to think about those, uh, that same issue in relation to other dimensions of diversity, um, in relation to racial diversity and internationalization and career diversity and uh, so on. Um, and I, as I say, I think we have quite a lot to, to do on that front um, because we still um, are hearing uh, anecdotally that people feel themselves unwelcome uh, at some of our meetings. Um, a couple of things I could just point to, I mean, the um, uh, ISIS, uh, the latest issue of ISIS, our flagship journal, uh, some of you will have seen, um, there was a, a very substantial feature discussion about the issue of um, racial categorizations and collecting demographic data. Um, uh, this is something that um, uh, institutions uh, often feel they need to do to uh, provide some benchmarks to measure the, their success um, in increasing racial diversity. But it is a problematic enterprise to ask people to identify themselves racially and, and to collect those statistics. And so we decided we wanted a, 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 an open scholarly discussion about the history of that sort of enterprise of collecting those kind of demographics. And, um, and that's what you'll see represented in, in that section of, of ISIS. Um, uh, and we're going to, trying to build on that to figure out how to go forward um, uh, in um, uh, providing ourselves with uh, some kind of data that would help us to measure further progress in that direction. But uh, as I say, I think we have to start by recognizing how much needs to be done. Thank you, Jan. Tom, how is SHOT addressing questions about diversity and inclusion? Um, I'll have to say I uh, agree with what Jan said in very one very specific way. Well, frankly, it's 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 humbling. I mean, shot since we were organized in the late 50s, we've always thought of ourselves as being a welcoming, collegial, friendly society, low barriers, everybody is welcome. And it was quite shocking, I, I will say, and hard to hear that uh, some people had the same experience at a shot meeting of being unwelcome and to have an atmosphere be unwelcome. And so that is, that should be like a flag that gets waved in front of all officers of all 
learning societies to try to figure out, well, what were we doing right, but what slipped through the cracks that didn't, uh, you know, that sent us down, uh, sent, sent us down the wrong path. Here's one concrete example that surprised me. We were meeting, uh, will be meeting in New Orleans. And when you look at the city and region of New Orleans, you can't help but think that there is a entire deeply structured racial dimension to almost everything that goes on. It's a, a racially segregated space, let's put it that way. It's economically segregated. There's many different dimensions. And somebody commented, so, so in our shot call for papers, which is a kind of programmatic statement, we invite um, you know, papers uh, for the meeting on all aspects of the history of technology, but we would especially, and we went social justice, we went structure, we went infrastructure, policies on and on and on and on and on. But apparently we did not include one keyword and it's like a Raymond Williams keyword. We didn't say race. And somebody pointed out, this was months and months later, they said, but you didn't say race. And it was just like one of those silly things that we apparently didn't have the right group of people around the table when that um, call for papers was issued and commented on and lovingly crafted and we forgot the word race. And somebody said, well, I just, I just look at calls for papers and if it doesn't have that uh, word in it, then I go elsewhere. And that's, that's one of those places where without intending it, we were blind. And so I think figuring out not only how, um, how to avoid the absence of keywords and the inclusion of the correct keywords, that changes, right? Um, everybody in my age uh, at a certain time had to learn BIPOC, you know, uh, what, what, what was that? Black indigenous persons of color, that's a useful term now. So there's other kinds of keywords that if we're trying to uh, reach out and to be inclusive in racial dimensions and in gender identity questions and in perspectives, then there's a discussion that's going on almost in popular culture and uh, younger scholars are just attuned to that in a way that people of an older era or a, an older age uh, find it uh, really challenging. Other thing that I'm thinking about, we've been thinking about carefully about how to structure our international um, outreach. And there, I think we've hit on a kind of short, medium and long-term. So short-term, we just have international scholars that come in, they're named, it's a two-year, essentially a kind of, you know, welcome, there's six or eight uh, each year. So that's a short term, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of at a low level. And we've had a medium term, we've supported workshops and conferences around the world, co-funded, not support, but co-funded. And that's kind of with the idea that somebody does a conference, it takes them a year or two to plan, and then hopefully, uh, the conference itself gets shot branding. And then what we want is to have papers from that conference then be fed back to the annual meeting. And then the third more longer term dimension of internationalization, I'm just thinking we could do the same thing with diversity and inclusion. We could have short, medium and long term. That's where this is going. But in the long term is really looking at uh, different um, research groups uh, around the world 
choosing you know one or two or three countries at a time our finances are limited and establishing a three four or five year period where we would set up a series of workshops with the same goal of increasing traffic between kind of the core uh, shop community and people that are in Latin America or in Asia in uh, different places where we haven't been as active as we um, as we want uh, as we want to be so it may be the case that we don't have to think of like one single thing but thinking of just just different layers you know both short medium and, and long term that might be a way of getting some purchase on this and thinking that there are different ways of starting a process. We're, we're really talking about starting a process of organizational cultural change. And first off, not gonna happen overnight, not gonna happen in six months, might happen in six years, right? Think of you know, uh, you know, women's issues. It took shot probably 10 years fully to uh, respond appropriately and to make mainstream uh, considerations of uh, gender equality and putting gender uh, you know, front and center on the uh, intellectual and, 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 and topical map. This is probably something similar that it's going to take a sustained effort over way longer than six months. It's not a three-year effort. It's probably something that we will be grappling with really you know, for the next, I don't wanna say 10 years and then stop, but it's not going to be easy to change patterns of our own organizational culture that have crept in. We didn't intend to be racially exclusive but by not including that word in the call for papers for New Orleans, we missed a major opportunity. That's a pity, we have to do better. Thank you. We have another series of questions and a clump of questions that are focused about the jobs crisis and everyone I think is using the words jobs crisis. And those seem to have three kinds of issues that people are mentioning. One is what to do about it. Um, it, we are hearing about several places are canceling tenure jobs uh, recently in the last few weeks. Um, is there an effort to promote tenure track positions or to increase tenure track positions? Um, does the lack of young scholars finding jobs, the difficulty of young scholars finding long-term jobs threaten the mission of the societies in promoting scholarship and how should we be responding to that? Um, and in, in so far as long-term tenure tracks jobs are decreasing, uh, are there possibilities and can we think about promoting possibilities outside of academia for long-term employment of historians of science, technology, and medicine? Hard, hard, good questions, but hard questions. Uh, who would like to go first? Jan, I don't think you've gone first yet. <laughs> uh... I, I'm not sure what I have to offer on this. I mean, um, uh, I think we recognize the, the seriousness of the situation. I mean, there's, there's, there's never exactly been a time when the academic job market wasn't in crisis, but clearly we're in a very, very serious situation now where uh, individuals who have jobs are losing them. Um, and I mean, the society is, uh, there's there's a limited amount that we can do, but we clearly need to um, uh, think about this seriously because you're right that in some respects this threatens our raison d'etre. 
Um, uh, I mean, one thing obviously is we need to uh, diversify our own um, activities in a way which serves people in other kinds of career tracks and to um, do our best to support scholarly activity in history of science, technology and medicine conducted by people who don't have the privilege of a, of a university position. Um, uh, I guess uh, another way thing that we can think about is the ways in which we are active in the public domain, um, promoting the importance of the scholarship in the history of science, technology and medicine. As Keith has mentioned, I mean, it shouldn't really be necessary for us to make that case at the present time, but it is. Uh, and we, we do need to um, uh, figure out ways to make that case um, uh, uh, more persuasively and effectively. Um, I think we were largely dependent on our particular members um, for doing that. I mean, we have members who are active and clearly talented in a variety of public uh, domains in, in different media um, and uh, we can encourage them and we can uh, uh, try to promote their efforts but um, uh, it's not clear exactly how learned societies can be involved in organizing those kind of activities. Um, so I, I mean, there are other initiatives we could think about. We used to have an initiative, for example, that uh, sent uh, distinguished historians of science to university and college campuses um, to give a lecture to encourage people to think about creating positions in the history of science, uh, technology and medicine at those, at those institutions. Uh, maybe that's something that we need to revive but our resources are inevitably limited. Um, uh, we're not, as Keith says, hiring institutions. Tom, um, has, has this been a conversation that's shocked? Yes, and I think it's a little, uh, to me personally at least, it's a little frustrating because I can imagine some version of this conversation occurring 5, 10, 15, 25. I mean, it just, it goes back. like. How can we engage the public? How can we get the word out, et cetera? And I'd like to focus the question not outward so much because I think there's some members in our communities, all of them, that are just geniuses at a kind of a flair for promotion. They should be our public faces. From a scholarly society, I think it raises a kind of fundamental question about what do we do for our members? And maybe in the past, we thought that just offering a journal and running an annual meeting was enough. That was like we were dangling something before a willing set of uh, historians and others interested in, in, our, in, our, in our instance, in, interested in some aspect of technology and culture. And that was enough, but it actually, it, it raises a question, so what do we actually do and how can we do it better? So if it's the case that you want information, then the journal is fine. You don't need to change that much. If it's the case 
that you want to give papers or to hear papers at an annual meeting, then we don't need to change that too much if we're moving to a place where uh, in-person meeting is not the center of our activities. And I think the challenge in my mind is really a very specific one. What do we do to build a community when we are not meeting in person? So those questions about networking and interaction and being able to meet people, meet new friends or new acquaintances, people that you don't know, and how do we um, work on those sets of new activities? I don't have a good answer to that. Um, people that are younger than me are very happy. I'm, I, I've noticed, you know, with Zoom meetings, there's somewhere between one-fifth and four-fifths of the community is really having a conversation on chat. That's where the, that's where the, the conversation is. And I didn't learn that skill. I, I'm sort of more center. So there's, there's new skills, but I think there's new platforms. And for sure, I think that we need to be addressing the question, what do we as a scholarly society provide to our members with a special focus on younger members that don't have a deep pockets necessarily at all. They don't have a university that can help them with travel. Maybe they don't have a university at all. And I think those are really challenging and really tough questions. So the broader questions about changing the academic structure, I think that's outside any particular society. The ACLS or a consortium of societies might be able to exert some influence, but I think that's, that's beyond what an individual society can do, but an individual society does need to have a very focused answer um, and, an, and an improving and, and pointed answer to the question, what do, we, what do we provide? Why would somebody become a member and remain a member beyond just going to the annual meeting? What, what's the value that we provide as a community um, that may be partly paper, partly in-person, partly online? That's another challenge, I think, that that's takes some, take some work. Keith, can you tell us your thoughts or reflect the discussions at AAHM about the jobs crisis? Yeah, I, I can't say much about a conversation at the AAHM, um, although what I do want to stress is we're, we're, we are in the midst of a jobs crisis, but we are not at all certain what the duration and the depth of this job crisis will be. Uh, we were in a job crisis in 2008, uh, 2009. Um, I remember the first semester I was in graduate school, the stock market tanked and there was a concern about what implications this would have for the job market that was in the late 1980s. Uh, so the, the real anxiety is how deep and extended will this particular uh, crisis go? Um, I should say something about the American Association for the History of Medicine relative to this question, because we're a professional association of historians, yes, but also physicians, nurses, archivists, curators, and librarians, and independent scholars. So if there is a job crisis in academia, it has a kind of a, a varied significance. We have physicians who are historians. My, my first job was in a department of social medicine in a medical school, right? And, and, you know, I've straddled the history departments, but also public and international affairs. We have members who are in schools of public health. 
So one has to really ask the question, right, is the jobs crisis uniform and uniformly devastating? Or is it something that is producing temporary or extended hiring limitations in certain areas, but not in others? And we're still not entirely clear. We know that this season is bad. The question is, will next season be as bad or worse? And how long will the recovery uh, take? Now, given that, I mean, we're also in the AHM in a, in a very particular position, as I've, as I've emphasized a couple of times, which is the issues that are of the moment, understanding the dynamics of a pandemic, um, dealing with the uh, distribution and the social and political issues surrounding a vaccine, debating masks. Our field, and I would argue the, social, the history of science and the history of technology have never been more critically important to the public discussion around this. So I'm a kind of a cheerleader for our field. That is, and that's why I emphasize curating. And, and the fact is that our members have been out there writing about these issues. So it's actually made my job as the president easy in the sense that it is about curating, disseminating, and amplifying. The reason why I think this is important is I do have this maybe naive sense that when there is the rebound in the jobs, people will be interested in what the heck just happened? What's, you know, how did the pan, what are the, leg, what's the legacy of crises of the kinds that we've just experienced? And I happen to think that it's the historians of technology, it's the historians of the biomedical sciences, those who can talk about the production and dissemination of vaccines, and the historians of public health and medicine, who will be asked to play prominent roles in institutions of higher education or in other kinds of institutions. And certainly, you know, there's been an outpouring of writing. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is that our society has gone through multiple stages of developing in terms of diversifying its membership. It used to be that we were dominated by docs, physicians who, took history as a kind of a side interest. We've become a professional society of historians with physicians and with nurse historians and with archivists and curators and librarians and independent scholars. And the question is, what kind of membership are we moving to next? So to me, it's a dynamic historical question. It's not a like, okay, our work is done, close up shop. It's how do we respond and build on, uh, respond to the challenges and build on the opportunities of the moment. And, you know, like I said, I, I tend to see as many opportunities as I see challenges without downplaying the significance of the jobs crisis, right? But there are gonna be many other outlets for writing about and engaging with these kinds of issues. And our, as a society, we wanna be supportive of people who are writing about studying, researching, and interested in the history of medicine and allied fields. In fact, that's our mission, right? To promote and encourage research, study, education, and interest in the history of medicine and allied sciences. Thank you. We are getting close to the end. And I just uh, 
want rather than me asking another question if there's a few thoughts that you have to share with us in response to the conversations or otherwise so i had one quick like other comment about the um kind of diversity inclusion uh racial justice social justice question and it's it's less about the history of medicine and the association and more about sort of my approach to this, which is that the pandemic has provoked us to emphasize the, you know, people talk about structural racism, and it's the structural part that I think is perhaps most important to understand. Like, why are people in poverty who live in congested housing with multiple, you know, family, family members in one dwelling more susceptible? Uh, how does housing, transportation, um, the nature of work, like in a meatpacking plant, make for disparities in the um, in in the COVID-19 mortality? Uh, and then I keep going back to the sort of the vaccine. You know, we've been debating masks as one preventive, but we're moving towards a very complicated story about how vaccines will be developed social and public trust in vaccines, which has already been really devastated by the kind of vaccine denial, but is now going to be further complicated. I mean, I can't think of another topic that doesn't bring together kind of the social and political and economic history of science, technology, and medicine than what's going on with vaccines and what will be happening with vaccines in this pandemic over the next. So I, I, my feeling is our societies, our associations ought to be at marshalling the expertise that we have. And I've actually been pulled into many of the conversations with ISIS uh, and um, to try to actually do that. And I guess my feeling is without making us all pandemic experts, right, or 20th, late 20th century you know, historians, that, that we as a society need to be pushing into the foreground this kind of expertise. I think it will do our societies a great deal of good. And I think ultimately it'll help um, our junior members and postdocs and others to kind of say, this is the kind of work that my field represents. It's as it as it engages with issues of the moment. Jan, did you want to? Uh, no, I don't really have anything to add at this point. I think the questions took a, rather a form that we anticipated, and uh, uh, that's those, those are the things that are on all of our minds at the moment, unquestionably. Yeah. Tom, any final thoughts? I'll just take a kind of a point counterpoint to, to Keith. I admire Keith's um, optimism and engagement. I think that's where we all need to be uh, aiming at. Uh, early in the racial reckoning this summer, I was on Twitter and somebody said, if you're not an expert about race, keep your mouth shut, listen, and don't blurt out and assume that just because you have a PhD behind your name or any other degree behind your name, that you're an expert because you've read, you know, whatever, two books or some larger or smaller num uh, number of books. So I think that there's a point, and I would, I would just change the engagement just slightly 
and say, we don't expect everybody in SHOT to be an expert on 20th century or for that matter, 19th and 20th century biomedical technology, far from it. Many of our members are uninterested and have no background and in some ways should keep their mouth shut, just, just saying it so that the voices of experts that have solid knowledge are the ones that are heard rather than somebody who happens to get the attention of a, a newspaper reporter. That said, it's abundantly clear that just, you know, say looking at a 30-year period, topics in the history of technology that were not on many people's radar 30 years ago are front and center right now. So our special interest group with computers was very small. It was like 12 people. It wasn't 29, it was 12. And now it's the largest of our special interest groups. Why? Because there's a real interest, not only in terms of history, but in terms of people running museums and running archives. They need to know something about the history of computing as a field and the special knowledge that people that study computing has. And there's a kind of maybe a bit of intentionality that you can say, look, this is going to be a place where for the next 10 years, there are going to be people that need this knowledge, even if you didn't start out being somebody who's expert on public health and vaccines, that's a good thing to know about. <laughs> it's a very good thing to know about. And it's a good thing for society to know about. But at some point in time, we have to be a bit humble and listen. And then at another point in time, we can say, now we're ready to say something in the, in the public realm. Teaching is another mode, of course, where you can say things and say, I'm not a historian of public science or public public health, but here's some things that that I can tell you about this uh, about this present moment from my background in whatever your expertise happens to be. So just a note of humility. Always necessary. Great. Good. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. I think these are these are big questions and that uh, maybe there's a role for conversations like this in the consortium. We're certainly getting pushed and pulled by the people who care about these questions of diversity and the jobs crisis and inclusion uh, and ways of connecting with each other. So I think these will be uh, conversations that will continue. And thank you very much for joining us today to share us, share your thoughts and, and the perspectives of your societies. And thank you for the fellows for joining us for your very good questions. I know I didn't phrase everything the way everyone wanted me to phrase it, but, but we'll, we'll continue. And thanks also to Larry Kessler and Matt Hofarth who ran the show behind the scenes. Um, for those of you who are fellows, uh, please do join us Mondays beginning October 5th for the fellows seminar. And otherwise, please look at our uh, working groups and join whatever interests you or start a new one. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you, you very much. For that. Thank you. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic, other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.